0: Good welfare is not just avoiding abuse, not kicking an animal or whatever abuse happens or not happens. It's just a a random example, but also good experiences in life are necessary to obtain good welfare, not just avoidance of anything negative.
1: A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like... At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Ataseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable ways. DSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. And AB Vista.
2: All right, welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Elizabeth Bobeck. I'm an Associate Professor at Iowa State University in the Animal Science Department. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Leonie Jacobs, Assistant Professor in Animal Welfare and Behavior at Virginia Tech. Welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, thank you for having
2: me. We are very excited to talk to you today about your area of research, but first I would like to just hear a little bit about how you got involved with poultry.
0: Sure, yeah. So it started during my education, so I didn't grow up on a farm or anything like that. Rather, the opposite. I grew up in in the Netherlands, but sort of in suburbia, so not a lot of exposure to animals. And like many children, you want to work with animals when you grow up. And I was like that too. Uh, so during my education in the Netherlands, uh, I got was first exposed to education related to animal welfare and behavior, and then uh, more specifically to poultry research in that realm. And I was just really interested in the underdog species, people that don't really think chickens can do much or are that fun or or are that smart, and I just wanted to work with them and they basically show the opposite, I guess, and be their advocate. So, yeah, I started doing a project uh, as part of my master's, working with laying hands uh, at UC Davis under Joy Manch's uh, lab and Giuseppe Fizzoli's project. And that's where I got my first hands on experience with laying hands and their behavior and I just really like that, so from then onwards, just working with chickens mostly,
2: yeah the rest is history it sounds like after that um so what what was your path to becoming a professor it's a a path many people want to go on, but I think everyone seems to be a little bit different in some of its timing and luck,
0: yeah, I think I'm definitely part of the lucky one, so after my PhD, I got the opportunity to do a, a postdoc at the same research institute that I performed my PhD work on there in Belgium. And while I was working on that postdoc or really just getting it started, uh, my supervisor at the time sent the vacancy at Virginia Tech around. And apparently they had difficulty finding someone and they've been looking for someone working with poultry for a year or so or even longer, I think. So I think actually, at that time, I was the only applicant. So they flew me over, wined and dined me, and it was all looking really nicely. So I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna do it and got the opportunity to start as an assistant professor after two months of (laughs) postdocing.
2: That sounds awesome. (laughs) Yeah, the area of animal welfare and specifically poultry welfare, I think has really changed just in the last five years, especially just with um changes in consumer preference and housing style and that sort of thing. Um, but I know you do quite a bit of work directly with birds as as far as ways, you know, to measure I'll put it bluntly, their feeling about a situation. I, I think you can probably use more elaborate words <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> down to that. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah yeah but can you can you tell us a little bit um maybe about some of your work that's just related to like emotion and how the bird feels that that part is seems really interesting to me <laughs> yeah
0: sure yeah so it's also really interesting to me so that's why i'm sort of moving my research into that realm uh a little bit away from like some of the more traditional, I guess, welfare measures where you look at health and behavior and more trying to find out how do they feel. And yeah, it is really as, yeah, that is probably the best way to describe it is trying to figure out what they feel. And um, I actually named the project unofficially like finding happiness in chicken. So, (laughs) so that's what we're trying to do. And uh, the tool that we've been using is not that new. It's just new, especially for broiler chickens. It is using cognitive bias testing to determine uh, their bias because how you feel bias is your choices. And that's really based on human psychology and has been applied in many other species. So with, for instance, sheep and cattle, the, these type of tests has been have been really successful in determining if an animal is more optimistic or more pessimistic when they're exposed to a situation where the or well, when they're exposed to an ambiguous situation so when it's not as clear if this is going to be a fun experience or a scary experience
2: so how do you set those experiments up because i i can imagine it can be it can be difficult not being in the bird's shoes, right? To to decide which is the good experience or which would be the bad experience. But how how do you set an experiment up like that? Like what, what are your outcomes or how do you know <laughs> which way the bird's feeling?
0: Yeah, that is the hard part is trying to figure out what is positive for a bird or what is negative. And luckily uh, we know a lot about the sort of the basic biology of chickens and we know that they are generally a prey species, though, so, so they tend to be fearful. So that's things that are related to fearful experiences are generally negative. And then especially with broiler chickens, they are very motivated to eat. So food is generally a positive experience, or at least that's what we think. So uh in these cases we use food as a reward and in the test where we look at optimism versus pessimism we don't use a punishment so as an animal welfareist i try to avoid any negative situation although that's hard and can be hard in research but so the way we set the the cognitive bias test up or more specifically the judgment bias test is using food and in this case mealworms as a reward for the chickens <laughs>
2: I think that would be very exciting because it's much different than a production setting uh, reward, which would just be a mash or a pellet. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. So we were thinking about what would be like the ultimate treat for a chicken, and yeah, it seems like they do really enjoy mealworms a lot. So. They like mealworms.
2: <laughs> do you find? Um, I think if you if you look at humans, there are people that tend to be pessimistic and tend to be optimistic. If you had to just look at the bird population, does their pessimism or optimism change based on the situation? Or do you think birds already enter the test with a feeling of pessimism or optimism?
0: (laughs) Well, those are good questions. Um, In short, we don't know. So this is just one of the first times really that this type of test was applied to uh, broiler chickens in my case, in my lab's case. So we really do not know for burler chickens, but also not even laying hands for other poultry, like how fixed is an emotional state like that? Can we change uh, a pessimistic state into an optimistic state by maybe changing their environment? So that's really uncharted territory at this point where we just were able to figure out that we can use this test in broiler chickens and they do respond differently depending on how they were raised. So in our case, we raised them in an enriched, very complex environment and compared it to a more barren environment where they don't really have much complexity at all and then trained them to perform the test and then have them perform the test. So we saw a difference between that environmental complexity and that really was just the first step, seeing that, okay, they respond to this test differently, more optimistically when they are in a more complex environment.
2: So when you say more complex environment, are you talking about adding things like ramps or perches or is there also lighting changes and maybe music? I mean, what are you doing to the environment to make it more complex?
0: Yeah, um, so the ramps, that's a good example. The music could be, but that's a little hard if you're doing an experiment like in one house. So we couldn't adjust much in terms of lighting or sound or even smells. But what we did try to do is provide biologically relevant enrichments to increase complexity and then also less biolog- biologically relevant uh, enrichments. So what we did was provide them permanent uh, items in their pen, like purchase or well, more platforms, uh, a dust bath with sand, so they have some different litter, and we had packing blocks, mineral packing blocks for them to um, pack at. And then we had rotating or temporary enrichments, which were uh, balls filled with oats. We gave them alfalfa hay and those sort of metal cage balls that they could sit in or pull out. We gave them regular plastic balls to uh, kick around or do whatever (laughs) they wanted. And some uh, like string enrichment, so hanging strings that they could peck at. So all kinds of things. We really tried to give them anything we could think of that they may like.
2: Yeah. It sounds like they're training for the Olympics.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of ball sports.
2: (laughs) Occupational (laughs) enrichment. So then when, uh, when you actually performed the optimism test, I'll call it that, what did you, uh, what did you have to train the birds to do? Yeah.
0: So that was the hardest part of this work was training the chickens and In the first uh, trial we did, it went well, but uh, it takes a long time. And with broiler chickens, you have limited time because they grow from a chick to processing weights in about six to seven weeks. So you only have those six or seven weeks to get them to complete the task. So what we needed to train them on was first, be sure that they know the difference between the two cues. So the test is set up that you have two extreme opposite cues in our case, we had like a plastic ball bowl, bowl that was white or a plastic bowl that was black, and then a color cue on the back of the wall of the arena as well that was also white or black so we really really needed to make sure that they know that white, for example, means a reward and black means nothing, so no rewards and but also no punishment so there was a lot of time and student hours that went into repeating that training. You put them in the environment, in the arena, have them walk up to the ball. They need to find out, oh, this is the rewarded ball. Then you put them back and then see if they walk back. And you just have to repeat that Mm -hmm. until they consistently walk towards the rewards. uh, Five out of six times was, I think, uh, one of our criterions.
2: Yeah. So uh, so then what would make a bird be more pessimistic? Do you put obstacles in the way for them? Does, do you make it harder for them to find the bowl, Or is it just based on the original environment they came from?
0: It's the, the theory is that how they're housed in their day-to-day life will impact how they respond to the test. So most of this work or of this project is focused on training them to understand white is rewards, black is nothing. And then the actual test comes in where you present them with something new but ambiguous. So that's when you present them with a gray ball. And then the question is, are they going to think there's going to be mealworms in that gray ball? And if so, they'll walk up to it quickly because they like mealworms. But if they think this looks a lot like that black ball that never had a reward, I'm not going to walk up to it or I'm going to explore, but slowly. Yeah. So it's all based on how quickly they will respond to those sort of intermediate cues, so the gray bulls that we uh, show them in the test.
2: Yeah, that is so interesting. So um, maybe the optimism because of either the novelty or the environmental complexity caused birds raised in a more complex environment to go check the bull out quicker.
0: (laughs) That's what our theory is, is that these birds that have a better life, between quotations, at least based on the complexity, can express the behaviors that they want to express a little more, have a little bit more variety in their life, are more optimistic to receive the rewards when they see that bowl that they've never seen before.
2: Yeah, huh, that that's really interesting. So um, if you have just started working on that project, where do you hope to go with it? What, what's your big picture
0: (laughs) goal yeah so that is a good point because as you can hear this test is not very applicable in a commercial (laughs) setting because (laughs) nobody has time to train like 30 chickens for six weeks to uh, perform the task so one thing that we wanted to do and we're working on now is uh, to get the get the training step a little bit more quickly finished or like improve the training step so what we did in a recent uh, a little more recent study was uh, train them in pairs so have two birds in there at a time instead of one so they can learn from each other Uh, and also it's a little less scary to be in a new environment on your own or with a with a con specific rather than being in there on your own so we've had more success with that but the ultimate goal is not to use this test in a practical environment really it's more to use it as a tool to find out which environments or which management procedures or which conditions do these birds prefer so it's all basically a tool to test do they like this enrichment do they like going outside do they like i don't know being housed on this type of litter versus that type of litter so hopefully you can use this test in a small scale to determine how chickens feel about certain things
2: yeah the the preference testing is really it's really interesting because a lot of things are just done out of practicality or volume or ease or something <laughs> so having having a preference especially with litter i think would be really really interesting <laughs> so um i know you also were mentioning the short growth period as far as training goes um for broilers have you have you found I, i'm not sure how many different strains you've worked with but i know that in laying hands some of the different strains have different sorts of personalities as far as being a little more hyper or calm have you found any of those personalities in the the different broiler strains or have you just kind of found a preference to go get food <laughs> <laughs>
0: So we've only tried this in two strains, but they are very opposite. So we have tried it in the very fast-growing sort of commercial strain where it was really hard to train them. And then we tried it in a much slower-growing strain, but in the pair uh, approach. So that could have also contributed. And they learn much quicker, the, the slow-growing birds. It's also they're a little bit more active. So what we had with the fast-growing broilers is... Yeah, they they tend to sit down, and if they don't respond to the test, they'll never learn that there is a reward to be had. So there was definitely a difference in responses, and uh, we also saw a difference in the effect of complexity, although these results have not been peer-reviewed yet or published, (laughs) but uh, we did see that environmental complexity didn't have the same effect for the slow-growing birds as they had for the fast-growing birds
2: huh that's really really interesting so you do the work right so you can get results that you Mm -hmm. don't
0: expect (laughs) yeah it's hard to explain and as an animal welfare issue want to say like they want an environment that's very complex but apparently or at least in this specific situation these slower growing birds yeah didn't care too much for our complexity and were actually a little less optimistic than the other ones were
2: really interesting cool well I, I can't wait to read that in a publication in the near future, hopefully. <laughs> it takes quite a bit of time sometimes to get that from lab to manuscript. So I, I understand the struggle. <laughs> cool. Um, well, so one of your other areas of research that I think is really, really interesting is broiler chicken welfare on the last day of life. Can you maybe talk about some of the things that you've found and maybe departures from normal, um, maybe and things we could do to improve the welfare on the, the last day post-harvest?
0: Yeah, sure. So this is a less happy story than the, the happiness project, unfortunately. But yeah, a large part of my research, mostly during my PhD uh, research, was focused on that last day of life for broiler chickens again. And really wanted to figure out which welfare issues occur because it's it's a little bit hard to find out what really happens on that last day of life, because these chickens are caught, they're loaded onto trucks, they drive on the road for a few hours, they're at the slaughter plants or the processing plants. And there's they really go through a lot of hands, almost literally, uh, and also figuratively. So it's hard to find out where the, do the problems happen and what actually occurs. So that was the goal of that project, was to find out... What are some of the issues? And what we did was measure or like take a sample of birds from commercial flocks and just looked at a range of welfare, potential welfare issues repeatedly. So we measured some at the farm just before they were caught by the catching crew. Then again, after they were caught by the catching crew, then again, at the slaughter plants, both on the live Heart and then when they were carcasses, so it was an intensive project. And some of the I think more severe like welfare issues that occur are fractures, um, bruising, in other injuries, mortality. So those things are preventable partly depending on how much time and effort you want to put in, uh, and those things could improve. Like avoiding those things could improve broiler chicken welfare immensely.
2: So do you think some of those issues are just related to um, maybe how the birds are being caught or handled or if they're getting frightened and flapping their wings? Um, is it is it due to, let's say, uh, machinery or equipment limitation or is it just like stocking density and... Maybe time and stress related, or maybe it's both.
0: <laughs> yeah, so all of those things you mentioned could play a role in some of those injuries. What we found though was that, for instance, for wing fractures, the majority occurred during the catching process. So that's really when the roughest handling occurs. And that was where we saw, like, a, I think it was a 1.8 or 1.9% of our sample. Uh, had a wing fracture after catching and although that sounds relatively low you do have to keep in mind it's millions of birds every day that are processed so that those are thousands or hundreds of thousands of birds that get a fractured wing and then have to start like on the road and yeah go oh to the slaughter. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, yeah i can't imagine traveling with a lot of people and having a broken bone <laughs> but, uh, without some sort of treatment that I don't think I would enjoy that. So I understand. (laughs) So what are your, what are your recommendations, I guess, as far as things that could be done uh, either commercially or, or how would you apply that research maybe on a small scale, just to even start producers thinking about catching or doing things in a different way, because it, it affects, I mean, not only is it a welfare concern, but it affects, productivity and sustainability too
0: yeah that's right and it's such a shame especially in the last day to have that happen right because all that money and effort already went in for those six or seven weeks to get the birds growing and healthy and ready for processing and then it's hurt and maybe and you cannot use wings that are broken or injured you can probably use other parts of the bird still but it's a loss regardless Yeah, some recommendations. I'd have to look at what is going on, or I feel like is going on in Europe now, is moving more towards different uh, methods of handling the birds. One thing that people often don't consider is that chickens are really the only livestock animals that we just pick up by their legs. And why do we do it? Just because we can. But we wouldn't consider doing that with other animals that we can lift up you wouldn't like catch five lambs by their legs to put them in a crate so part of it could be a change in mindset considering these are animals and not project products yet at least so handling a little more carefully and part of that could be through education or um, yeah i guess education of the people in the industry to understand more but I say that but I also understand that as a poultry catcher you do want to shut yourself off a bit because it is one very hard work if you have to manually catch all these birds it's not very fun it's very dusty noisy heavy it's it is hard work it's not not fun to do I think I don't think it is and then if you think about it too much that they are actually animals that feel things that could make the work even harder for you too. So it's not that easy. And I understand their perspective too. What we see yeah, in Europe, we see that they're moving or some of them, some organizations are moving to catching birds upright rather than by their legs. That means a maximum of two birds in your hands rather than five or 10 depending on the catching crew. It, it is more labor intensive because you do have to bend down more because you only pick up two birds instead of five or six or however many um but it has shown to reduce injuries a lot
2: have you um have you done any work comparing uh manual catching versus using automated catching such as you know the conveyor belts that uh, the birds get pushed up onto them and then they get put into cage from there, do you see less fractures or do you see different types of injuries just because it's a different method?
0: yeah the I have one read about those uh, or seen those studies, and they were part of my research as well the automatic catchers versus like the manual in our research, we didn't really see differences between the the types, but in some other uh, studies they did. I don't think there's a consistent benefit to automatic catching, although Looking at it, especially if it's the conveyor belt type, it looks much more animal welfare friendly because birds aren't picked up by their legs. They're just sort of hop onto the conveyor belts, you go into another conveyor belt, and are then uh, sort of conveyed into a crate. So it looks better, but I think there are some downsides to the methods that could be related to the machinery. One study found higher mortality rates uh, in the automatic system, but it could be that dead birds are picked up that were already dead in the house, but yeah, they don't know. So I think intuitively automatic catching, I think could be better for animal welfare, but I'm not sure if the the science behind it is a hundred percent agreeing with that.
2: Yeah. That is so interesting. I would have assumed less injuries, but it it could be just, different types of injuries (laughs) kind of like the stoplight cameras change the type of accidents that happen at intersections (laughs) that's so interesting
0: the settings and the management of those machines will play a role too so the speed of the conveyor belt or if someone's uh in front of the machine checking if dead birds or injured birds are picked up so that could also play a role
2: that is really yeah that's that's something to consider because uh there's always with everybody in agriculture and any sector, it's finding labor to do some of these things. So making making sure that if you're substituting labor with an automatic machine, it's run correctly is probably a big, important thing. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. And I do think that's a, a benefit of the automated, more automated system is you do need fewer people. The machines do also need to be maintained. And that is hard because it's a very challenging environment, a poultry house, very dusty, very dirty.
2: Yeah. 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 That's interesting. So, um, kind of taking those two areas that you work in together, is there are there projects that you're thinking about right now that you just haven't been able to do yet or things you would like to do, but you got to develop, um, maybe a, a test or a procedure. <laughs> so what are your, what are your future thoughts about where you want to move your welfare program?
0: Yes, so one of the things uh, related to sort of the measuring happiness is there is another cognitive bias test that doesn't require the birds to be trained. And we've been working uh, on using that test in different contexts too. So I'd like to develop that further because that also has more of an application in potential industry. If you could include it, for instance, in an animal welfare audit, that could, I think, provide a lot of insights because there's just really not a lot of ways to measure how an animal feels. There's a few measures out there. Not everybody agrees that they're really valid. So having a test methods that is practical and validated to measure some type of emotional state would be, I think, a big win. And so we're trying to get that going.
2: Yeah, I think your point about the training is a big deal because also someone has to spend the time uh, in the barn and the producer also has other things to do. So maybe he's not really into taking the time to do some training. (laughs) So if it's a, if it's a simpler test that could be employed, I'm sure produce, there are many producers out there that are forward thinking and they're looking to integrate, you know, for sustainability reasons, for production reasons, you know, also bottom line reasons, increased welfare, if they're able to implement something that could help all of those things they're they're ready and willing to go do that so the simple applied test that can be done in the field I think moving that way is really important so that's really awesome <laughs> you've got that on the table
0: <laughs> yeah and another way where I think as you said there is interest from the industry to find ways to sort of quantify these things that are practical rather than just research settings and another, avenue potential avenue is looking at biomarkers or like physiological indicators. so we've been doing some of that too um and although that takes also takes a long time to validate we uh, do see some uh, potential biomarkers that could maybe like five years ten years could be used in a practical situation to get some more insight in how these birds are doing yeah
2: yeah, I know the traditional biomarkers um, is cortisol, but that can even be based on how stressed they are when you pick them up to maybe draw a little bit of blood or something. So um, it's a really interesting biomarker just because it can change so rapidly. So you can maybe miss the thing you wanted to measure just because you've applied another stressor. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. There's, uh, I think, a sort of a growing group of people who agree with me also not that I was the first one who said it or anything but I agree with the group of people is that cortisol or corticosterone are maybe not the although they give us a lot of information in specific conditions like if we know something is negative like the transportation or the rough handling you could as long as you do it consistently could uh, record corticosterone or cortisol and get good insights in how the animals experience that handling period. But what other studies have also found is that it's more responsive to arousal. So how worked up the animal is, rather than if it's a positive or negative experience. So if we're not sure if something is positive or negative, maybe picking up a chicken gently and stroking it. We think that may be positive, but the chicken may be afraid because it's not used to being stroked or pets. If you then measure cortisol or corticosterone, yeah, you may inter- interpret the re- responses very differently than what the animal is experiencing.
2: We uh when we do research trials, um my graduate students always end up with the favorite bird somewhere and there was a trial last year this little hen was it was a broiler but um It would always come to the front of the pen when we were done weighing and she would hang out with it in the pen. It very much was, I would say, a domesticated bird. Like it it really wanted to be interacted with. (laughs) So I kind of like to see that because I would say, like you said, the normal response would maybe be fear. (laughs) But um, yeah, that that bird is this beautiful little hen and she just absolutely adored getting pet. So. kind of have those every once in a while that figure out that maybe people aren't so scary, but when you interact, when the way you interact with them is picking them up to weighing them, maybe they're just wondering, where am I going? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, finding those couple of birds that are really friendly is kind of fun. So I always wonder if we, you know, took a sample from them and one that was more scared, if we could start delineating some of maybe the, more, the temperament based um, genetic markers that I think are really interesting with some of the other research that has been out there as far as like domesticating the fox or whatever the the friendly lines and the scary lines the angry lines so, but I think overall if animals are happier and able to work with humans it just gives them a better better uh life productive life so <laughs> instead of having so much fear yeah
0: there's a lot <laughs> to gain by having non-fearful animals
2: so I know I'm guessing part of your job is also maybe working with producers or just ed- educating the public but you know, how would you, how would you teach someone, um, or how, maybe a better way to put this is like, what, what sort of like consumer information could you share that would maybe have people respect the chicken a little bit more, you know, cause they always say, oh, bird brain or whatever, but we know, I mean, the bird that figured out that humans are kind of cool and would always come up to be pet, you know, Maybe maybe if they were more comfortable around humans, they would express different behaviors. But, you know, do you have do you have any anything to say maybe about how feelings are expressed or that sort of thing? You know, because I don't think that many people, unless they've got laying hens at home, interact with chickens very much and they just might think they're isn't much going on <laughs> up in their little brain.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think some people would agree with you there. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and what, what's so hard about chickens, I think, and feeling for them is that they are so stoic, right? They look so have this sort of angry eye and they don't have really show any facial expressions. So you really have to base your interactions on their behavior rather than what they look like. And they can look a little scary. And a lot of students, when they first interact with chickens, are like afraid of them because they are so scary. And what I always tell them is they don't peck you because they're angry with you or they don't like you. They peck you because that's their, their way of exploring that the beak is their hand so they pack things to see what is this what is that it's their way of figuring out who and what you are so that's one thing I always try to convey at least to students is like packing is not an attack it's they're just figuring you out and seeing what you have to offer
2: yeah do you have any snacks <laughs>
0: yeah that's right
2: <laughs> Uh, what are maybe what are some uh, things about bird behavior that you might understand? So what are the more nuanced uh, behaviors that would help someone know if the bird is having a good or bad experience other th- other than wing flapping? Cause that one is kind of like, get me out of here. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, I cannot replicate it. So you'll have to look it up yourself <laughs> if you're interested, but uh, vocalizations can tell us a lot about how they're feeling. They have a very complex vocal repertoire and a lot of different vocalizations that one famous one is the gecko call, which is a vocalization associated with frustration. So anyone who has a backyard flock always lets them out in the garden in the morning, but forgot to do it on that Saturday morning because you were busy. You'll hear the gecko call because they're like, I'm expecting to go outside and now all of a sudden I cannot. And you'll hear that specific call. So it is on the internet somewhere, so you can find it to identify it.
2: <laughs> I'm sure I've heard it. I just didn't know it had a name. Mm-hmm. That's too funny. We, uh, um, I, I teach an intro to poultry class, and the students actually just today got their broiler chicks that they're going to raise for the semester. And I always talk about, um, maybe it's the, the gecko call, maybe it's not, but when the chicks are unhappy, you know, because there's usually one that's just screaming its head off and the rest are kind of making these little chirping noises, but that can indicate distress or they don't know what's going on. Or, you know, maybe they're separated from their friends, but that it, it could be a different sort of noise, but you know when the, where the angry chick is because it's the loudest one and it makes a completely different noise than the rest of these little fucking little friends that are maybe just searching around and finding their food and water. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, especially yeah, take a chicken out of the flock and put it somewhere separate and you'll hear a very specific call that you don't hear in the group. <laughs> that isolation yeah. stress is has a very specific call.
2: Yeah. I think it's helpful because we've in, in in large uh you know commercial settings if something is wrong like a bird is stuck behind something, you'll find it right away because it will scream they will scream. <laughs> Very distinct. Uh, that is that is too funny. <laughs> um, is there is there anything else that's on your mind that we haven't uh talked about yet? We've had some, I think, really good conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree. I know, I think it's important for anyone who's interacting with chickens to just sit down with them, not per se on the ground, but like spend some time with them to figure out what their behavior looks like. And both in a commercial and a non-commercial situation, it it can be very helpful to understand first what normal behavior is to recognize abnormal behavior. Because as I said, chickens are very stoic and they don't really show how they feel. So if their behavior changes, that's a big indicator that something can be wrong, uh, often related to disease, but it could be an injury or something else. So finding out... What is normal for your flock? I think is very important to them being able to identify when it's abnormal.
2: Yeah, they. Uh, I know for people with uh, backyard flocks, I'm sure the birds outside are their uh, their clock because <laughs> the birds have expectations yeah. and they don't care if you're busy. <laughs> is uh is there something maybe that you're that you're working on right now that has the potential to kind of change where bird welfare goes? Like, do you have some new ideas maybe that don't agree with? Uh, what the current status quo is or maybe ideas to push the field forward that you're interested in pursuing or already are pursuing?
0: Yeah, a few things come to mind. Uh, One related to that uh, sort of the catching and loading stress, I think some more research in the field of how can we effectively train these poultry handlers like the catching crew to be more cognizant without, I guess, negatively affecting their physical or mental health. But uh, training in that field, and there's been some work on, in that realm, not per se related to broiler chickens or catching poultry, but more uh, for stock people that work with cattle, for instance. It's uh, Most of that work is done in Australia. And they have developed a very interesting method to change, not rather... Rather than changing skills, changing like attitudes and motivations of people, and they saw that that was much more effective in how animals are handled, and then in response to uh, the, the better handling, production can go up, so that's made up related from that last day of life
2: That's super interesting. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts that might be, uh, might be high impact for someone listening in the audience maybe could change their the way they think about broiler welfare? <laughs>
0: Well, one thing I try to have as a takeaway is that even though they only live six weeks, their welfare does matter and they do deserve a good life. One uh, aspect of that is pro- to provide them with positive experience. So good welfare is not just avoiding abuse, not kicking an animal or whatever abuse happens or not happens. It's just a, a random example. but also, good experiences in life are necessary to obtain good welfare, not just the avoidance of anything negative.
2: Yeah, that uh, that's a, that's a really good point. <laughs> the um, the addition of good experiences, I think, hopefully, with the the way um, broilers or production is moving in the future to add different sorts of enrichment, I think, would be very important, especially because they've got. Short, probably the shortest lifespan of our different production birds. So it also means you can make a lot of impact in a lot of birds' lives. So I think that's a really cool place (laughs) that you could start.
0: Yeah, and I agree. And the enrichments are really going to make a difference. uh, But we still don't know a lot about the practicality of applying those. They have to be practical for the producer, but also. For the bird like how many of a certain item do they need how many different items do they need and all those types of sort of details are really not investigated yet so that's another avenue i'd like to take is finding out like what's the the minimal i guess enrichment level to provide to make sure that they have a good life
2: yeah yeah, I've seen, uh, there's, different, there's different guides that sort of lay minimums, you know, one item per how many birds, and the, I really am interested to know how those were developed, and uh, maybe, maybe your point is well taken as far as what's the minimum, what's the maximum, and to make the best use of those items that would be provided, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important, and that's a good point you make, those guides, probably just out of practicality that's where they get the number because I'm not aware of any like research that shows that one item per a thousand birds or whatever is sufficient to make an impact. So much more work to be done.
2: Yeah the I'm sure you've seen it but when you feed a mash or a feed that has got larger particles one bird can attract a lot of other birds attention if they find a whole piece of corn because they are trying to go run around and eat that and everyone is chasing them because there's something that bird has that nobody else has yeah. so I feel like some tests like that would be appropriate to see if one bird has an item how many other birds are maybe uh feeling jealous mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that is a good one. they also don't <laughs> they also don't have that item but it just cracks me up and we feed mash feed um in our research uh just because we're building a new feed mill that has pelleting capabilities but I really like when birds find that piece of corn that's not ground the same way because it becomes a very hot item until that bird can sit down and put it on the ground somewhere and eat it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and that could be a good enrichment, just adding in some of those whole kernels instead of just feeding a mash.
2: Yeah, yeah, well size appropriate because when uh, the little chicks, man, that corn is the same size as their face <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. <laughs> yeah, don't want to cause any negative welfare outcomes because you're trying to let them have some live some life but yeah um is there anything else that is uh that you want to say before we go to the three questions that we ask all of our guests
0: <laughs> maybe one more maybe less known fact about chickens is that they do play also so you you'll have to Look for it a little bit, but play is a behavior that chickens show, including broiler chickens. So, and that can be a sign of good welfare, although we are not sure yet if uh, how much play indicates good welfare. We do know that if you don't see any play, there that could be a sign of poor welfare.
2: Oh yeah, (laughs) it's really interesting
0: for everyone that has interactions with chickens look for play and you'll be entertained
2: yeah yeah throw one piece of corn and see what happens <laughs> oh, that's too funny
1: a worldwide leader in animal nutrition Adeseo's portfolio of products includes methionine the full range of vitamins enzymes organic selenium probiotics mycotoxin management strategies and palatability products with such a diverse offering, Adaseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adaseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adaseo at www.adaseo.com. It's time for our Famous Three.
2: Okay, well, here, here are the three questions that we ask everyone. We'll start with number one. Um, what is your favorite... Poultry-related book or resource?
0: Yeah, so I've contributed to this book, so I did want to mention it. There is a book that was um, published in 2020, edited by (laughs) in the the UK, and it's um, called Understanding the Behavior and Improving the Welfare of Chickens. And it's really a comprehensive book. It is a little pricey. A little comprehensive book about the -the state-of-the-art knowledge about chickens their behavior, and their welfare.
2: Cool. Yeah, that that sounds like a book I'd be interested in reading. So thank you for mentioning that. What is your favorite book or resource resource
0: outside of agriculture? Well, I'm an avid reader of Stephen King novels. I like uh, scary books. They need to entertain me. So (laughs) my favorite book is The Stand. The (laughs) Stand.
2: I never like reading scary books. So I'm impressed that (laughs) that
0: I need that sort of high level of entertainment to have me finish the book. If it's not like captivating enough, I'm not going to finish it.
2: Yeah, that's understandable. Well, I I know you probably read a lot during the day for your job already. So you need something a little little more interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So in in your opinion, uh, what sets apart successful poultry professionals from those that are not successful or less successful, maybe?
0: (laughs) I think that's a hard question. Uh, One thing that comes to mind is maybe having an open mind, not being too fixed to what you think is right or correct, but being open to other people's perceptions and experience. And that will help you go far in the industry just listening to other people and being willing to yeah hear hear them out too even if you initially may not agree with some of the points
2: yeah i i think that's an awesome point because i I know that sometimes when people hear well i i work with animals and animal welfare they kind of go oh my gosh it's like i'm not here to judge you i'm here to learn and you'll learn from me and i'll learn from you and everything will be better for it yeah (laughs) yeah
0: that's I have that experience too. And then also being from Europe, they even think, oh no, very, <laughs> that person must have very weird thoughts about the chicken industry or something. And I'm like, no, I just, I'm just here to, she said, to learn and hopefully we can learn from each other and make life a little better for everyone.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, I had a really nice time chatting and I, I hope you did too. This was awesome. Yeah, I did
0: too. <laughs> for thinking of me for this my first podcast ever so
2: <laughs> awesome <laughs>